I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hey guys and gals, this is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode 38. And we did not enjoy a day of sunshine in northern Colorado this week. We finally rolled the dice and landed on one of the 65 days of the year we don't have sunshine. So I'm your host, MotoGP. With me is Swiggy. Yo. And returning, we have Dr. Mike Action again. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, sorry, I couldn't resist. All right, so... What are we rolling with today? We don't have any emails. We don't have any... We did have one from uh, from Paul. Oh, okay. Oh, this is a short one. It was just, greetings, Moto G, Pete, and Swiggy. My 10-year-old Noah morphing to Mork oh, I Marquez. I forgot about this email. Yes, that's right. This is the most amazing email. So Paul, who had given us uh, an email before... And showed us a picture of his son playing the MotoGP game after after they'd watched it. This is great. So he and his son in Australia watch MotoGP. And, of course, with the time difference, it quite often happens late at night. Or you know, late at night Australia time, usually, because nothing else runs on the same time as Australia except for, like, Japan. And even Japan's, like, an hour off, aren't they? So I guess, like, some parts of China or whatever? I don't know. Yeah, they're usually a good, what is it, 12 hours, 14 hours ahead? There's something ridiculous ahead. Right. So it turned out, that uh, well, they would be on the same time zone as Thailand, which is where GP was last week. So they got to watch it at a fairly normal time. So uh, after they watch all the races, of course, it's it's getting a little bit on. So then he sends us this picture of his son in bed. And we're going to have to find a way to post this picture in the show notes. We'll have to get permission, but yes. Right. And he's got this picture of his son with the Mark Marquez book on his face and his arms are lined up and his whole body is positioned with his hair draping over the top of the book to look like, you know, he's Mark Marquez. It's a fantastic fan shot. I, I'm absolutely tickled by it. He also showed off his totally sweet uh, R70, R75. It was a slash six. Yeah, R75 slash six. Yeah. Which he said has lasted uh, through other bikes coming and going. So that's a bit of a feat. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, Paul, thank you very much. If if you're okay with it, send us an email and we will post that in the notes because I think it's a fantastic picture. Well, we can't tell him. We can't ask him on the podcast. It's going to come out. Oh, yeah. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, We're going to have to email him. So by now, Paul, you've received our email and you've said yes or no. <laughs> I am not a good podcaster. Okay. So to start this off, there's a little bit of news here. Um, Swiggy, you have bought a 3D printer. I have. Okay. Now, my immediate thought when you got this 3D printer was, okay, we need to print some sort of merch for listeners should they want it. But we have no idea. So I'm just going to posit this. Would we be okay with asking the listeners if they have the perfect idea for 3D printed merch and whoever has the best idea, we can print the first one and just mail it to them for free? If it's reasonably sized, yes. Well, that's what I'm saying. They can't just say like, 
I want a Noco Moto 3D printed flamethrower. We're not going to put that together and send it to you. It has to be the idea that we'll just repeat printing these for other people. It has to be the perfect usable idea that we choose. Here's a two scale uh, file for an R6 fairing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Whatever the perfect thing is. And someone will, someone will hit the nail on the head. I, I think, but I'm good with that if you're good with that, Swiggy. Something that has to have function and form to it. Right. Like like something you can clip onto your gear. And then, other exciting news. Mike, you're considering putting a bid on a new motorcycle. <laughs> is is this news? I mean, it's something I saw online and was like, oh, I want this. Well, this is super cool, right? No, it is. So, uh, so those of you who tuned into, uh, the, I think the first episode I was on, which was episode 10, which is still your guys' best episode. Um, and we talked, it's the one that's called, um, uh, when the shit hits the fan, you're going to want a diesel, oh, yeah. uh, where, where Swiggy nails it on the, on the specs to this one diesel motorcycle, mm-hmm. uh, that comes out of the Netherlands. Well, I mentioned kind of as a very offhand in that episode, I mentioned the existence of other diesel motorcycles. Cause there's only one that's out in production right now. Was it offhand? I thought we went off on that bike for like half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. But my, I made an offhand comment that, oh, there are other diesel motorcycles. And this one is, it's an army motor army issue motorcycle and i i said in that episode oh there's these little motorcycles that were made by the army but they're almost impossible to get your hands on well i just saw on a government auction site that like six of them are being auctioned off right now super cool so since the bidding ends after this episode comes out (laughs) i think i guess we can talk about it exactly um but no i mean um they'll probably go for about 10 grand each and they have less than 3000 miles on like all of them they were made between 2000 well, the one you showed me had like 158 miles yeah yeah that one that's that one's the of the four or five that are being auctioned that's the one that where the sale ends first um but they're Kawasaki what i say KL650s uh KL650A yeah 650A and one one is a some of them have other designations one of them is a C um, but they're, they're diesel. They have haze engines in them and, uh, you can't find all that much information about them because they come out onto the market at random time, several years apart. So if I can get my hands on this, it'll be the diesel motorcycle for way cheaper, half the price of the, uh, of the new, uh, um, uh, t- the T 800 CDI, uh, that we went deep into right. <laughs> on that other episode. Well, this bike is super cool because. It's not like just some weird diesel bike. It's a KLR650, but it's a diesel KLR650. Mm. It's not an actual KLR engine that's been converted to diesel. It's a different motor. But you know that the 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 riding experience is pretty good because it's a it's a well-known frame and and all that sort of mm. stuff. There's there's plenty of stuff you can get for it. If you're going for a weird diesel bike, I think the most mass-produced diesel motorcycle ever was the Royal Enfield Bullet diesel. Mm-hmm. Which, if you, if, I've heard that if you, you know, if you think owning an Indian-made Royal Enfield is a pain in the ass, the diesel is even worse. And the only experience I have with this is my buddy Steve, who has a Royal Enfield Bullet, an Indian-made one. We discovered that the wiring harness on his bike is off of one of the diesel models. Huh. 
Yeah, I think they just were short on wiring harnesses in the factory, and they just started throwing them on because we found all sorts of stuff that didn't go anywhere, and we were trying to clean up the wiring, and nothing made any sense. But the the really terrible part was the stator went out. So we ordered another stator, promptly waited like four months, then it showed up, and then it was the wrong stator. So then we ordered a diesel stator, waited another like two and a half months, it showed up, and it didn't work. Uh. And then we had to wait more months for finally a usable stator to come in. Wow, you're telling me a country song here. This is right? <laughs> sad. This is terrible. It's an absolute it, nightmare. So It makes me think of the uh, Johnny Cash, like piece at a time, only maybe they're trying to clear their inventory piece at a time by like exactly, sneaking parts into right. other motorcycles. But again, but this KLR, this could be a pretty good usable real world diesel. Mm. And I, I've told you, I don't think you can really lose money on this. I, if you wanted, if you bought this and you just wanted to unload it for whatever you bought it for at any given moment. Yeah. Like I'm like, Oh crap. I should never have paid the money for this. I have more important things to do with this money. I need it back fast. I'm, I'm willing to bet just between the cast of motorcycles and misfits in Cleveland Moto, you could unload it like that. The, just, yeah, just between those two shows, there's enough weird motorcycle fetishism. You could get rid of this bike. Should mm. you regret the decision? Uh-huh. So well, let's, I say again, go for it. even talking about this, we're getting ahead of ourselves because there were like 50 bids on the first one and it ends like two days from now. So who knows? Like, like, you know, 10 grand's my cutoff. And then I'm like, Oh crap, I should not have done this. Yeah, but I mean, it's going to go for a fairly fair price. You're not going to be able to resell it for profit, likely. But so stay tuned, listeners. So Find out tuned, if Mike yeah. actually ever bids on this thing that we're talking about. You have to put a bid in. Go for put a go bid for one of the higher with. mileage ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'll do. And then I would set a cutoff of like eighty five hundred strict, mm-hmm. and then you know you're going to go to nine grand. Yeah, you're pretty, yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is like, I'm still riding my Cowie from from it was my starter bike and I've still I mean it's kind of been in pieces for a while which we talked about before, but it's all cleaned up and ready to be put back together. There's nothing wrong with it, but this is a bike that I would sell my starter bike for. You know, this is this is a bike that I would be like, "Wow, this is awesome. I'm going to clear out this Cowie and replace it." Oh yeah. And it's, these are super cool because they're all painted army green. Like, yeah, that that would all have to go in the basement with U.S. Marine Corps on the side of them and Mm -hmm. everything. It's it's too cool. As awesome as that is, the the resale value on these things is so high, even to just military surplus bidders, that all that would go in the basement, and I just have aftermarket crap to take out, which I totally agree with. And again, uh, Twisted Roads, I bet you could just list the bike and make your money back in a year or two. Yeah, you're pre- yeah. If, uh, if, if I can guarantee that people aren't going to tear out the clutch, I'd have to see what a clutch for, uh, for this kind of, if it's a regular cow, like KL series clutch, then, um, then yes. Well, they must have done. Is it going to have a normal motorcycle clutch in it? Is it going to have would like be, would be the Hayes engine, right? Clutch. Yeah, because mm-hmm. otherwise it would have to be some sort of weird pre-unit construction. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to have to see if you can find that clutch. Uh-huh. Because we are getting ahead of ahead of ourselves a little bit here. But but it's it's cool daydreaming. But yes, yeah. from the very from the get go, we have been getting ahead of ourselves here. I don't know. I think you got to get it. All right. <laughs> 
Okay, so we burned 10 minutes there. Do we want to just go to best worst bike or do we want to play the game? Um, I think we should do best worst. Okay. Oh, can I, I'm going to ask one more, and you guys can cut this, uh, okay. but I'm going to ask one more weird question if I can as kind of a engine new – I certainly don't know as much about, about this as you guys, but the idea of coding valves or coding pistons to like buy like a ceramic or some kind of special material to coat them to like make them last – you know, super long. Do you guys know anything about this? So there are plenty of bikes available that have ceramic coated pistons and all that stuff that mm-hmm. they come with doing it after the fact on a bike. That sounds like way more effort than it's worth to me. Uh-huh. Well, there are places where you can like send off your stuff and, you know, pay them some cash and get it. Back. But what like, kind like, of bike are we talking about? Just any motors, any, any pistons, any valve, like, is it better to be ceramic coated? Is it, is it going to help in any way? So let's say correct you want me if I'm wrong, Swiggy, but with the ceramics in these engines, I don't think that it has much to do with friction per se, as it is about heat transfer. It's primarily about thermal efficiency. Right. Hmm. So your gains, I don't think, are going to have much to do with larger engine life. It's also usually not the like the pistons and the valves. Hmm. It's normally the, the cylinders themselves. The cylinder walls, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And yeah, and the idea is, well, if... Better heat you, transfer, it won't crack quite as readily. No, it's the opposite. Hmm. It's thermally insulating so that you don't lose a ton of heat through the cylinder walls. So here we go. Uh, A lot of cylinders used to be or sometimes still are what they say sleeved, Mm -hmm. right? So you've got your aluminum or cast iron or whatever the the jugs are made out of on your engine, Mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily the greatest material for the cylinders to be lined with. So a sleeve of material is made and pressed into the cylinder. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So instead of some other traditional thing to line the cylinders with, they put in a ceramic sleeve or ceramic coated. Okay. Okay. Right. And the rest of the engine is usually designed around that as well. So doing it so after doing it the after fact, is going to change a lot of the basic. Um, engineering i just don't the... think you're gonna see enough gains to make it worth it, the cost okay because we're talking about a complete engine teardown basically mm-hmm. at least a complete top end teardown you got to get to the connecting rods and the crank and all that other stuff as well yeah we're talking about a full engine teardown and for what mm-hmm. you know so i don't, I don't well, think i don't up. think you're going to see the gains or benefits in it for the cost that it would take okay what got me thinking about it was just simply like if I want a motorcycle and I want to get in there and coat some stuff so that this motorcycle is has has it can endure you know thirty years of use and it's and and as long as like the crankcase doesn't bust open it's gonna keep going. Well, there's plenty of motors mm-hmm. without any fancy aftermarket work mm-hmm. that have done that just fine. It's Regular oil changes, mm-hmm. checking valve clearances. Don't redline it everywhere you go. Yeah. Okay. And okay. then maybe every 50,000 miles a rebuild. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so no great benefit, and that's why we haven't heard of a bunch of people doing it. 
Yeah. Okay. No, it's definitely nice if you're buying a bike and that's kind of been incorporated into the design. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it's going to help you get more thermal efficiency. Like Swiggy said, that heat, you're going to move somewhere towards the benefits of like an HCCI engine, if you know what that is, mm-hmm. where that extra heat, you know, retained by the ceramics is going to help you combust fuel better. But as far as more power or longer engine life, I don't think it really works out that way. Okay. So anyway. Good answer. Again, I could be completely wrong on a few points here, but from what I, the little I know about this, I don't think there's a lot that points to being that worthwhile. Mm. All right, so let's move on to best worst bike in the world this week. If you are a new listener and this is your first time hearing, this is sort of our signature segment. Every week, me and Swiggy pick a different bike, and we alternate picking the best and worst bikes in the world this week. Now, this is just a fun way to look at two different bikes you might not normally look at twice. So if you disagree, eh, just kind of keep your opinions to yourself. And in the immortal words of Liza, there's no crying in motorcycles. So with that said, this week, Swiggy, you have worst bike in the world. Is that correct? I do. All right. And now reveal it. The worst bike in the world this week is? The Yamaha. SCR 950. Okay. Can you bring that up on the screen there, mm-hmm. Mike? I got it. The Yamaha SCR 950. So I don't have a picture in front of me yet, but Mike will bring that up soon. From what I know about this motorcycle, it was kind of pricey, or it is kind of pricey. It's a throwback retro bike, sort of. It's a bit of a scrambler in the modern definition of it. It might be one of the more capable new scramblers, and it's supposed to make pretty decent power. Wrong on all accounts. Really? Okay, so the... Wait, is this the one that's the bolt? Yes. Oh, no, I'm thinking of the other one. Okay, never mind. Yeah, I was completely... Okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Now, before I say this, remember that Ryan F9 made a pretty compelling argument that this was the best scrambler. Well, he made an argument that it's the best scrambler in that it's shitty at what it does, which is very much in the spirit of scrambling. Doesn't it make almost identical power numbers to the the Harley 883 Sportster? It's very close. Okay. So if you think about you know what a scrambler is and the obsession with bringing them back, which really started as a bit of a hipster thing, bringing back the older bikes and, and building up some scramblers. And if you really think about what a scrambler is, a scrambler is basically a classic standard British motorcycle that has had different tires put on it, maybe some modifications to the suspension, and then... You try to take it off-road, often without a helmet in some farmer's field, and do some sort of obstacle riding. Well, okay, but the definition of scrambler I have slowly been coming to accept has changed. Yes. Yes, it has. But you're going to have to let me get through this, because this is really important. Okay, go on. So, right now, Ducati has a scrambler. Mm-hmm. 
called the Scrambler. Very original. Triumph also has a Scrambler called the Scrambler. Yes, they do. <laughs> now, if you look... hungry off the breakfast menu whenever I hear that. <laughs> yeah. Egg Scramble. So if you look at the, the Ducati Scrambler and the Triumph Scrambler, they are classically styled bikes. Now, the Ducati may have a an engine as a stressed member and a bit more of a trellis frame, and it's liquid-cooled and it's doing some other things. Of course, it also has a bit of a throwback to the the classic 60s and 70s Ducatis. Yes. But the Ducati Scrambler is actually the most honest of all the, of of those three bikes in that it actually can do some a decent job off-road. Mhm. Now, if you go to the Triumph Scrambler, it's it's something insane like 30 pounds heavier. Okay. Then not than this. Or than the than the Ducati. Right. It's at yeah, it's like five hundred and ten pounds wet. The Ducati is like four hundred and twenty-five wet. What do you think the, the SCR weighs? Ooh, I wanna say I remember reading that this was somewhere or like approaching or right at or only slightly above five hundred pounds. This is five hundred and fifty-five pounds wet. What? So, here's the thing. Now, you can say... You can say that being a scrambler... Okay, it's it's pretty much a fashion statement at this point. Nobody really takes these off-road. Right. How How's the definition of scrambler changing? So, originally, a scrambler was an actual functional thing. Mm-hmm. It was taking a street bike and making it capable of going off-road. Right, right. They give it that, longer then, suspension. They would change the handlebars. They would do a few... They would take an existing regular road bike and they would create a light duty off-road version Mm -hmm. except scramblers evolved into the modern age they're called dirt bikes Mm -hmm. right so so what are we talking about like way back like decades ago scrambler uh probably started really becoming a thing in the 50s okay okay yeah so you know, the the notion of a modern scrambler is really just an extension of the retro throwback design, which Triumph nails, which Ducati kind of does their own thing, but it, it's sort of faithful and stylish and works in its own way from an aesthetic part, point of view and from somewhat of a functional point of view. The SCR 950 does neither of those things. This is true. So... The SCR 950 is the largest motor. It makes the least horsepower. It is a purely air-cooled motor. It's very, very slightly over square, making 51 horsepower and 58 foot-pounds of torque. But also keep in mind it's 45 pounds heavier than the Triumph Scrambler. And about 130 pounds heavier than the Ducati Scrambler. Not only that, it has a belt drive on it. Okay, I want to talk about that because I've... Why does it have a belt drive? It has a belt drive 
Because the, the Star Bolt yeah. has a belt drive. And why does the Star Bolt have a belt drive? Because it's imitating a Sportster 83. Okay. So, this bike goes against the entire philosophy of what the the Yamaha Bolt line, or not even line, just what the Yamaha Bolt is trying to do and trying to be. Yamaha is trying to steal the thunder of their own idea while simultaneously ripping off Harley Davidson and failing catastrophically. So what's going on is you've got the Yamaha Bolt. And if you want to bring up a picture of that for your own edification, Mike, go ahead. I'm actually a fan of the Bolt. I well, would have a Bolt over an 883 any day of the week. Well, right. Because the whole point of the Bolt is they created something almost identical to the 883, undercutting the price. And then Yamaha decided they were going to create themselves a ridiculous aftermarket of add-ons to... So you could take a bolt and do exactly what you would do with it as you would do with a Sportster. Customize it any freaking way that you want. So the whole point of buying a Yamaha bolt was it was a blank canvas at a very cheap cost to do whatever you wanted to do. So then Yamaha loses its mind and they're like, well, we have to have a scrambler. We can't get left out of the cool kids club. So they create this, which is just a different combination of aftermarket parts they were already making as different customization op options for the bolts. And they went, which combination of parts looks the most scramblery and will sell that as its own bike? Which is completely against what the Bolt is. It's go ahead and make your own thing out of it. And they went, no, why don't you buy the Yamaha Bolt SCR 950 Scrambler Edition? Well, no, because anyone that wanted that bike would have already done it by just buying a Bolt and doing it themselves anyway. No. And just by forcing this idea, they created a subpar Scrambler. Here's the thing. Now... First of all, the bike does not look that much like a Scrambler. Proportionally, it is not the size of a Scrambler. The whole concept of the Bolt is that it's modern engineering in a classic style. But now you take the SCR 950 and it's supposedly vintage Scrambler styling, not Scrambler engineering, not a Scrambler. It is a bike with Scrambler styling right which i think they they use that exact copy because they didn't want to get sued but here's the thing what is modern about this bike it has very short travel dual rear shocks yeah it is an air-cooled v-twin it's mm -hmm. low compression there's it's a two-valve motor yeah what is modern about this bike it's got gatored forks well, I mean, gatored forks make sense off-road. You don't want all that shit getting into your um, your uh, your fork seals and whatever. Yeah. But this thing's not going off-road. It's never going off-road. It is in no way capable of going off-road. It's got low pipes. It has a low it has a low ground clearance. It's not really all of that tall of a bike. It is purely an aesthetic thing. But all of the different 
all the different aesthetic factors here don't make it look like much of a scrambler. I agree. And even even if you just want the scrambler aesthetic, all of the aesthetics of a scrambler are inherently functional. Yes. And none of the aesthetics on this are functional. Again, low pipes, 50-50 tires, low ground clearance. It None of it comes together. On top of this, okay, so you may say that I'm being really cynical in how I'm describing this bike. And all I have to say to that is the existence of this bike is cynical. Yeah, because they're thinking they can just take a vague styling aesthetic and just completely sell you on that when you don't know anything about the bike, you don't know what the bike's supposed to be or mean or do. And you're, yeah, they're, they're just trying to think that they can price something a little bit under what Ducati and what Triumph are doing and just steal the business on this style factor alone, which this bike doesn't even meet the minimum standards for the modern scrambler definition i mean what you guys are describing it's the age-old story in business which is you know the the kind of the motorcycle itself suffers for it but as a business model it's fantastic which i mean were any new parts manufactured to create this bike no yeah it's the tank I, was i think the exhaust is a little bit different um the seat but I not think a lot these were mm-hmm. all options you could get to customize your old bolt though here's the thing though you could have they could have made a fairly good scrambler that would have worked perfectly and would be a little bit closer to the Ducati interpretation because they already have a fantastic platform that lends itself to this style of bike. It's called the MT07. Right. Well, again, well, what's the, the price difference between the two? This bike is $8700. Compared to the $9,400 of a Triumph Scrambler. Okay. Whereas the Ducati Scrambler is like ten and a half, Or the $10,000 basically for an 883 mm-hmm. Sportster. Versus the MT-07? No, versus the SCR 950. Okay. Or I should say the $10,000 of an 883 Sportster after you've customized it the way you want it. I think the actual right. MSRP right. on an 883 Sportster is probably... Somewhere around nine, closer to nine. But after, but no one buys a stock Sportster. It's never happened. Pretty much. So my other problem with this bike is it kind of goes against everything that Yamaha is all about. While every other company is making middle displacement bikes, off-road bikes, adventure bikes, and everything else, Yamaha has really stuck to performance as a key and core value. We've seen Honda sort of get out of the performance game a lot and go for much more real-world, sensible bikes, target new riders. And specifically, Kawasaki and Yamaha, I've seen move in and steal up that extra market share left behind. And they're you know making things like the... Uh, MT10, right? Which is a nasty, ridiculous. It's it's a it's a standard bike with an R1 engine. It's 
dumb. I mean, it's awesome, but it's dumb, right? Right. And all the triples that they're doing and all kinds of other crazy performance-based things. I mean, performance-based, this is the company that makes the R6 and the R1. Who else is really competing against them? Only two other companies, Kawasaki with the ZX-6R and the ZX-10R and Suzuki with the Jixxer 600 and the Jixxer 1000. That's it. That's the entirety of their competition in those markets. And Suzuki's still just making the same stuff and going by on legacy. Kawasaki is doing some uh, interesting and impressive things with the Z series for the standard bike market and the naked bike market for this. And Yamaha is a little bit too with their MT series and everything, but they're just going full on performance. We're still making the stupid, powerful motorcycles. Yeah. And so the idea that they're going to make this bolt, well, that's cool to just diversify a little bit and compete with Harley with them seeing Harley lose market share. It's kind of in philosophy with what they've been doing. They see where other companies are struggling moving in and stealing that market share with a very reliable, well-built, you know, and cheap to market product and brilliant. Go for it. Love it. But then to try to make a half-ass scrambler to move into a, a market, like that's not their style. That's a bad look for Yamaha. When Yamaha moves into a market to steal share, they've traditionally done it with a really good bike. This is a failure. I think the only reason they went with it was the combination of it being probably the only cradle frame they still make. And also it being the only air-cooled V-twin they still make. Yeah, I, whoever whoever designed this and put the parts together and made this package and did the marketing, this was the easiest job they had for a few years. Yeah. Oh, you're in charge of the Scrambler project. And there was like, they were like, well, there's only one way we're going to do this besides a complete ground up design of a new motorcycle. And apparently that wasn't in the budget. It wasn't in the marketing plan that year. So they're like, well, I'm, I'm literally going to go on the Yamaha website, bring up a bolt customize it as much as I can to look like a scrambler, show that to the guys in engineering and tech. Then I need a bunch of pictures of dudes in bell helmets and brown leather and flip-flops, and here we go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seeing a lot of pictures of guys who look like they'd be happy uh, just chewing bacon. (laughs) Yeah, there's not... This bike doesn't... If you if you look at the marketing for the Ducati Scrambler, there is some shots of people going off road and everything, but it's much more about an urban lifestyle mm. sort of thing. It's a right. it's a good bike. It's a Ducati. I think it's really just a shrunk down monster in a lot of ways, but it's it's packaged as this very desirable lifestyle sort of thing, whereas the SCR doesn't really do that they're not even selling you on a dream the whole point of buying this bike is to try to like have guys feel some sort of classic coolness they want to because okay here's what's wrong 
for years and years and years in motorcycles, there's been this idea that new riders aren't valid. That whole thing of, well, $20,000 and 20 miles doesn't make you a biker. And, oh, I hate these guys that just buy a bike. And all of a sudden, they think they're a real biker. Shut up. Now, as we've said before on the show, new riders are just as interesting to us as seasoned riders. So I think one of the reasons that a lot of younger people want to buy classic looking bikes is I think there's this idea that if you buy this classically styled bike, you will inherit some sort of credibility by buying it and therefore may not be judged as much by other people. And you might make a group of riding friends quicker, or you may just want to project the idea that I'm a new biker, but I know about old bike stuff. So don't hate me for being a new biker. Mm. And I think this is why all the neo retro stuff and the classically styled stuff gains a lot of traction. And this bike is probably the most obvious example of pandering to that crowd that I've seen, but it's not even hitting the mark within that crowd yeah because it's a piss poor example right but do you agree that's probably what it's trying to do right i mean even if you don't like the styling of the ducati scrambler or of the triumph scrambler you can tell you can still accept that these are functional bikes they have their market there's an interest there's that little niche and they serve that well There could be room in my life for a Ducati Scrambler. It's a great little commuter thing, and it's fun around town, weekend canyon carving, all sorts of things. It's a usable bike that makes a lot of sense. But that's already a niche. And then the SCR 950 doesn't work as a general bike, and then it doesn't even work within that niche. It's a step beyond. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't have the single biggest styling cue that people love about scramblers. It doesn't have high pipes. Are you yeah. kidding me? It the high pipes is what people love about the Triumph Scrambler. They love that look. It's just an aesthetic, but fine, whatever. It's okay, cool. You want that look. If that look makes you feel cool. That's good enough. But the SCR doesn't even have high pipes. How much would it have cost to fit it with a cheap set of aftermarket or a cheap set of pipes? But if someone wants to look scramblery on the SCR, they have to buy aftermarket high pipes for it. And it's an already customized bike to look like a scrambler without the high pipes. Some would argue the defining attribute of scramblers because there were some piss poor scramblers in the 60s and 70s that really were just a stock bike with fork gaiters different springs and then a high exhaust added and that was the entirety of what made it a scrambler and the handlebar switch but visually the most obvious cue there is the high pipes Mm. yeah swiggy had me when he said that there wasn't very that the suspension is low yeah. Well, now mm-hmm. let's be fair. Compared to even the even a twenty year old, super cheap, 
like rewelded framed you know 125 cc dirt bike will kick the shit out of any of these mm. off-road oh yeah that's the idea like, of them yeah well but, it goes back to what point, i was saying a but, couple episodes yeah, the point is not that that these are good off-road it's that the styling elements are inherently functional and make them okay at being off-road mm. but you're both missing so if if you're missing the styling cues you're also missing the functionality they that they the bike styling suggests it should be able to do right so and yeah, you still call colorado. it a scrambler yeah living in colorado right i'm gonna spend most of my time if i leave my front door so if i leave my, so living in colorado if if i leave my front door i'm gonna spend most of my time on main roads um, with the kinds of bikes i ride but you know, I realize that that last maybe two miles, as is very common here in Colorado, you realize it's dirt roads for the last segment of it. You're going to say to yourself, "Oh, I'm on a scrambler. This is good, right?" So that it's it. Um, so it's not perfect. You're not going to do jumps on this bike, though some people could. Um, but it's it it's applicable. I mean, you're saying, "Well, I'm going to be all right because I'm on a scrambler. I have some amount of protection to my underbelly." In reality, nobody will actually use these off-road. <laughs> Maybe a, a somewhat gravelly driveway. Mm. But, yeah. but the point, if, the if point you have, is... If you, dear listeners, have used one of these scramblings <laughs> off-road, be sure to no, write to Nobody Swiggy. outside of paid stunt riders and motovlogging journalists have taken these off-road in any reasonable mm. capacity. But it goes back to something I was saying a few episodes ago, which is... Americans have this obsession with their vehicles having the ability or at least just the perceived ability to go off road. This is yes. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't need to understand it. I just recognize it's a thing. And right. it's part of the reason that all these vehicles now resemble SUVs. They're not really SUVs anymore. But they resemble that right. because well, it, it helps the buyer in that they just perceive it. It doesn't matter if it really can go off road. All that matters is that the buyer perceives it has a certain ability to go off road. Right. So here's an example. If you look at the general evolution of family cars in this country, you start off with you know, the first move in terms of really functional family vehicles was the station wagon. Three rows of seats, lots of storage capacity. And then it moved on to the minivan. And the minivan was great and everybody loved it. But who drives the family car most of the time? It's the mother. And then the minivan was great. Everyone loved it. But then it gained the reputation as the soccer mom car. Mm. So now guys can't be driving minivans because you're going to be unless you're in a band. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had a dude yell at me. He was like, hey, minivan, because I cut him off. He was like, hey, nice minivan. You know, that was like his greeting to me. Some people are so, yeah. super into it and think it's amazing because they, they recognize the value in it and they get excited about it. Oh, no, this was a guy who was pissed off at me because I cut him off. He's like, hey, minivan. <laughs> right. 
I'm a big fan of the minivan. I think the minivan should make a comeback. But now here's the thing. You know, I don't have a minivan we got, anymore, we got, by the way. We had this because uh, <laughs> as an American, it's important to me to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> Guys couldn't be driving minivans, and they didn't want to be driving, you know, the fan, the the couple's first car, which inevitably was smaller and lower displacement than the minivan. So guys had to get SUVs. Eventually, everyone thought, "Oh, these SUVs are really cool," and all of all of the better off families thought, oh, well, we can get a three row SUV. I can, mom can now get an SUV. Mm-hmm. And now the SUV has become the soccer mom vehicle. Mm-hmm. So now, down to insecurity, guys have to escalate. And now you've they got. They buy Jeep Rubicons. They buy Jeep Rubicons or they buy Chevy Avalanches, which is really just a minivan for dudes. Yeah. Well, it's an SUV for dudes. It, yeah. So the difference is, is I've often said that the big adventure bikes are the SUVs of the motorcycle world, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Because plenty of them are totally capable motorcycles you can use every day in your life. There's nothing wrong with them. These are something different. Well, so here's the thing. These the- are like not a Jeep. These scramblers are like a jeep liberty it's not a jeep liberty Mm. well or or a jeep compass or a jeep renegade or a latitude right it 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 only in name does it hint at an off-road ability so to me the the yamaha of a city vehicle to me you're right we have a jeep compass and we bought it because it was the cheapest four by four available okay here's the thing if the Triumph Scrambler is a Jeep Compass, I think the Jeep Liberty is a better comparison. But, okay, so if, it, if or the, the Jeep, Renegade, but if, yeah. if the if the Triumph Scrambler is a Jeep Liberty, the SCR nine fifty is is a Honda Odyssey with off road tires. Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. That's that's that makes sense in every way. So yeah, I think Swiggy's made his point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I would not try to jump a gorge with this bike. I wouldn't try to jump a curb with this. Bike. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not a fan. And the, the crazy thing is, it hates me to hate. It hurts me to hate this bike because I like the bolts. I like the idea of everything you can get out of a Sportster, but in a cheaper package with all the customization and possibly more reliability and everything that's going on there. Just enough power for it to do what it's supposed to be able to do, overbuilt, understressed. Everything about the Bolt, I think, is wonderful. So it it pains me. But anyway, there we go. When did they start making this thing? 2016? Is that, is that right? I don't even care to look it up. Anyway, probably probably 2016 to 2019. Yamaha SCR 950. Worst bike in the world this week, but it's better than a car. <laughs> okay, so now we're moving on to best bike in the world this week. I'm kind of excited about this one. You know about this bike, but you don't really know about this bike. 
And the best bike in the world this week is the Ducati Super Sport. Which one? The Ducati Super Sport. Is is this the one your uh, your dad owned? Sort of. It's nine hundred. No, 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 no. So now, so Ducati used to make a whole line of bikes, the Super Sports. They said SS, right? Mm-hmm. Everything was just the Ducati SS. They did 750s and 850s, and they moved like 800s and 900s and whatever. Since basically a couple years after the introduction of the Ducati Panigale line, they updated the whole thing very quietly without a lot of fanfare. And when the Ducati Panigale lines came out, which is their premium line of bikes, right? Ducati's always had two tiers of sport bikes, much like the Japanese have the Japanese manufacturers. The big four have like their line of 600 super sports and then their one liter super bikes. Ducati has had a line of bikes that are usually 750 to 900 somewhere in there that are making equivalent power sort of comparable to inline four japanese 600s and then a line of bikes like one liter to 1200 that are more comparable to one liter japanese bikes and the displacements have moved around a lot because the way you configure a v-twin to be competitive in those against those 600s and one liters with racing homologation rules and stuff, it changes a lot. So Ducati, when they put out the Panigales, which were basically arguably are some of the most beautiful bikes ever made in history. The styling on the SS line or just the super sport line really stayed in the past. And then they updated it a couple Mm -hmm. or three years ago at max to resemble something a lot more like, the Panigales. And I argue that this line now of the Ducati Supersport, which is just a straight up, just one bike. It's uh, what, I think 959 CCs. No, I'm looking at a 2017 937 uh, CCs. There we go. The- 113 horsepower and 71 foot pounds of torque. Right. So it's very comparable numbers to, say, my Superhawk, which I can tell you is enough power, right? And so this is very comparable to like about the 120 horsepower you're getting out of a 600, which is way more power than you need already. But this has much, much more torque. Now, here's the thing. The SS line of Ducati was kind of like a redheaded stepchild to the Ducati name because it was never the big competition superbike. It was kind is, of the consumer budget option. Right. And it was kind of less desirable because the styling was never put into it that was put into the superbike line that they were always making. But in the last couple of years, quietly, Ducati has updated the styling on the Super Sports. And if you put it next to the Panigale, for me, I think the Super Sport looks better than the Panigale. So I'm looking at one right now, and it's got a couple things that I really like. It's got the uh, the headlight and the way the front fairing comes together. Is very great white shark 
Mm-hmm. It's got that shark nose on it, mm-hmm. similar to what the the CBR 650F has. Yeah. But it's a bit sleeker. It's a bit better polished. It's very nice looking. And a subtle feature that I really like is w- right where the 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 fairing joins the tank. Mm-hmm. It's showing just a little bit of subframe. It's just mm-hmm. it's giving you a little yep. look underneath. A little cleavage. But it's still yeah. like a nice full fared, full on super sport bike in the very classic, almost nineties sense of the bike. Right. In the way and even there's a little bit of that it's not quite there, but almost that line of the tail pointing down to the front wheel like the nineties bikes too. Mm. There's a lot of classic Ducati in here, but it's brought right up the date to look good next to the Panigales. And I love it. I think it looks both elegant, beautiful, and distinguished, which is a rare combination. If, let's say, the R6 looks like Dolph Lundgren, still very distinct, this looks a bit more like Army Hammer. It's a more (laughs) relevant, attractive, distinguished, hard jawline look to the front of the bike that's more relevant to today, right? Nothing against Dolph Lundgren. There's some great genes going on there. But this is something that everyone looks at and just goes, yeah, that's fucking sexy. That is masculine and elegant. And I want to be that. I want to be on this bike. This bike will make me cooler. This bike will make me better looking. This bike is what we all desire to have. So if you can get past the point that you don't need to have the most powerful bike on the planet, but you want a bike that has definitely more power than you can actually use on public roads, has full-on track performance, should you want to take it to the track, is competitive within a class, uh, at least at least competitive for you as a regular human being. If you have riding skills... You can take this to a track day and beat somebody on an R6. Don't worry, because at that amateur level, skill counts for more than power. But this has butt-kicking torque. What did you say was 71 foot-pounds of torque? Yeah. The spec? Yeah. What's the max speed on one of these? I'm going to guess somewhere around 136. It's probably even just limited to 136, like most of the um, 600 Super Sports are. Oh, it's way higher than that. It's going to be way higher than that. Uh, but- I, I ask because it kind of has that um, that scoop on the front that the Hayabusa does. A little bit. It, it's, it's, it's got some aerodynamics in mind, but it definitely sacrifices some aerodynamics for just dead, sexy styling. Hmm. And the styling is so good that this bike pulls off something extremely rare it looks good in white i can't think of i do have a weakness for my bike. the the buell yeah yeah you're a buell that you've, <laughs> the buell firebolt white, yeah white and aluminum right? oh oh the yeah the, the white and um and steel are the classic look of the buell right firebolt right but how many other bikes look good in white i think this bike looks better in white than it does in the Ducati red. And that's something else because white and black usually hide a lot of beautiful lines, but there's something about this. And especially when you get it with the red painted frame and the red anodized wheels, 
man, it just pops. Oh, it looks so, so good. And one of the best things about this is for a full on Ducati track capable, faster than you need, butt kicking torque bike, this does not come in at the price that you expect a Ducati to come in at. Tell now, me more. Now look up the MSRP on this. So the base model is thirteen and a half grand. And if you want the the super tuned S model, it's just under fifteen. Now I don't think the S is worth the money. I think if you get the regular basic one, that's worth it because they're both the same weight, they're both the same horsepower, and they're both the same torque. What you're getting with the S is an upgraded elect- electronics package, mm. and that's what the extra money's coming in for. So if it's a track day bike, then you're going to want that. Uh, you know, but you're going to have to be a really, really accomplished track rider to take advantage of those extra electronics. Honestly, you're way better cutting your teeth with less electronics and learning more about how the bike works than bringing in aids. Mm. Those rider aids on the track are really only for professionals or people just about to become professional. Otherwise, they kind of just do jack shit for you, honestly. They're they're good for helping them sell units. But in the real world, they really don't come into play in a big, meaningful way. And not enough Mm -hmm. for me personally to be willing to spend $2,000 extra. Okay, okay. So your dad, um, I was very much a beginner when I test rode his Ducati. I think I rode it twice. So that was an old SS nine hundred. First bike I took up into the mountains. Eight hundred. Oh yeah, eight hundred. Yeah, yeah. That was making eighty five horsepower. Mm, okay. This so is a hundred and thirteen. You said. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, because that felt like too much bike for me back then when I was a newbie and exactly. I'd only ridden my old KZ, but. How would this be for a newbie? Can, can are are the first are the? Are the I would lower... not recommend this for a beginner rider are... because not only does this make ridiculous power, the power comes on really quickly. Okay, this is all about low and mid range power. That's why even though it makes less power than a six hundred, like a Japanese six hundred, like an R six, mm-hmm. the power comes on earlier and it accelerates faster. So like a Buell, this thunders out of corners. Mm-hmm. There's not really a way to ride this super casual because the revs come up quickly and the power comes on quickly. You can kind of ride an R6 around and like just stick to like 6,000, 7,000 RPM or lower mm-hmm. And ride it very tamely around town and behave itself. It's very itself. forgiving in the, your lower gears. Right. Yeah. And with the four cylinders mm-hmm. and everything, the gear changes, it's all pretty easy. This is a much, much more advanced machine. Yeah. The, the very first time I went out on my Buell, I just tweaked the uh, the accelerator a little. I was in first gear and and holy shit. The best, I, was in my, I was on my street. The <laughs> best know? riders in the world didn't have this much power available to them until what the very late nineties, I would think. (coughs) So if you think you're better than Kevin Schwantz, okay, maybe this bike isn't for you. 
but do you really think you're that good? So now let's get back to the price and the value and everything. What are you getting for this with that couple thousand dollars? It costs more than a, than a 600 because we've established it's about that in terms of performance and flat out speed and everything like that. Well, it's not even all that much more. It, it, it's it's only what at most like a thousand dollars more than a brand new R6. Right, but it is still more, and people are going to bring that into play when they're thinking about it's what about, bike they're going to buy. It's about the same price as uh, Daytona 675. Yeah, exactly, but more power than a Daytona 675. But what are you getting well, with no, this? It's more torque. It's actually probably a little bit less power. Oh, really? Yeah, it probably is a little less. Yeah, but anyway. The, the, one, the 675 is something like 125. Nice. So what are you getting with this, though? Well, you're getting butt-kicking torque. Which at seventy one, trust me, that's that's great torque. That is that'll kick you in the seat of your pants on a bike that only weighs four hundred and fifty pounds. What you're getting is not just into the Ducati Club, but you're getting into the Ducati Club at a pretty high level. Honestly. Yeah, do you have a Penegali? No, you don't. But what you what you are is a real true Ducatista. You're not a hipster that's bought a Ducati Scrambler. You're not posing on a monster. Not that people on those bikes are posing, whatever, but you are firmly in the Ducati club with this bike. And you're in the course of mindset. You're in the course of mindset. There you go. You have styling that nobody can touch. Honestly, I think this looks better than the Panigale. That's just my opinion. I don't know if anyone else agrees with that, but really look at one of these right next to a Panigale. They are different, subtly, but there's something about this one that really speaks to me. This, to me, looks like just what a modern super sport should look like. I, I, you know, the, the R6 still looks good to me, and the, and the ZX-10 still looks good to me, but this one really captures the spirit of what I think a full-on super sport bike should look like it does have that element to it and i have to come back to the the shark look in that it's a little bit weird and it looks a bit blunter than you would think something super aerodynamic would look but because it's got that kind of it's that sort of primitive this this design has worked for millions of years and even if it isn't apparent to you respect it exactly it's that I, I I get the shark. I thought my my very first thought, just looking at the front end, was uh was was bird of prey. Mm-hmm. But no, I get the shark kind of sailing through the waters. See a, a super sport like this, I imagine like a peregrine falcon diving. But uh, but yeah, but this is no nonsense fast. And Mike, I mean, this is this is a sort of setup that really should speak to you, being mm-hmm. a Buell owner. Where you understand that your bike even making probably a little less than 100 horsepower. You're probably at like 95 horsepower Mm -hmm. at the crank on Mm -hmm. that Buell. But you know with almost identical torque, that's enough. Like the Buell is even just the XB9, not even the 12, will scare the shit out of you if you're not ready for that power to come on so quickly. Yeah. Oh, no. It's it's, um, scared me once or twice. Uh, particularly if I'm at a light and I pull forward and I have to 
get out onto the uh, – let's say I'm getting up onto the interstate and I'm at a light like right where I turn right and get up onto the on-ramp. There are mm-hmm. times where I'm afraid that it's – that I'm going to like um, – like it's going to be too much for me. Like I'm going to fall <laughs> – pull myself backwards or let go or something. Oh, yeah. And, I, and have, it, I have ridden your bike and not even taken it to red line, shifted hard into second and power wheelied. Yeah. Yeah. So – this bike does all those things, but with even more power, right? And it's right sort of – even though it's just sort of designated a super sport, that's the name of the bike. It really in terms of performance and how it performs in the real world is more in between a 600 and a 1,000. Mm. It feels more like what a, a Gixxer 750 would feel like. It's making that kind of torque. And when are you going to ask this bike to actually make all 113 horsepower? Never. Not, never. So in terms of I, how I it imagine feels, its power band, is it like 6,000 RPMs? Or oh, this goes up to like nine and a half, ten thousand 10,000 RPM. Uh, okay, so peak maybe torque so. is at 6,500. 6,500. But uh, max power is at 9,000. Oh, okay. 9,000. So that's that's enough. Um. So... What's nice about this bike and why I think it's the best bike in the world is it does something besides the Gixxer 750, I'm not aware of another bike doing. And where this is whole thing, this argument of people buying bikes, well, oh, 600 is already unusable power. And people are like, well, 600s are dead. It's only leader bikes now. You got to have the torque. Shut up. This exists right in between those two options. Mm. And it feels exactly the same as right in between those two options, but for a little bit less than the midpoint in price between those two options. Mm. So, And that's your sweet spot. If you're man enough to realize that you forget the horsepower, you're not even going to rev it up to use all of the torque on a leader bike, right? Mm. This exists as a more usable but still unusable option in between to kick the shit out of a lot of bikes that even have larger displacement up to 60, 70, 80 miles an hour comes in at a price that proportionally is less. You also get into into the Ducati club and you have unparalleled styling. Mm. Yeah, if you know, the, if the, you're going to spend between twelve and sixteen thousand dollars for a sport bike, you're an idiot for not buying this. This is the perfect ground of where performance meets cool factor meets price. Another thing I just realized is this is essentially you know the equivalent of a 750 with a 4.2 gallon tank. Yeah. Everything about it is great. Everything. And so it achieves what you – what it set out to achieve extremely well, which I think is a very good quality for best bike of the world. Exactly. It's a class killer, but the crazy thing is, is it created its own class, (laughs) right? If EBR was still in business, they would have something that might have a strong argument of being purchased over this. But – no one else is really doing this V twin supersport thing right now. You know, you you said particularly its closest when you competition said, really is the Daytona six seven five. Yeah. When when you said it looks good in white, 
it immediately because it has a full fairing on it. And the one thing I wish my Buell had is that that full fairing that the firebolts and the lightnings come with. The 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 the, the XB full because mine is just the front fairing. Oh yeah, but there's an aftermarket full fairing, full fairing you can get and it for looks it, so but it's hard sweet. to find. Man, it's hard to find. Yeah. Well, all Buell things are starting to get that way, unfortunately. That's um, true. Although but, now but that this... Swiggy is a 3D printer, maybe we can make one for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck on that, Swiggy. Update us on how that goes. But yeah, it's that it's that full-on, solid, fully-fared Super Sport look. Yeah. Like oh, if, I do like it in the it, white with the red subframe. Isn't it amazing? That is really it, good. I mean, it still looks fantastic in red and everything, but man, this white look, ooh, it's so good. That, that, that would be the one for me. Just the base model, forget the electronics, the red wheels, the red frame, the white body. Oh, it's sex on wheels. This looks as good to me as I put this in like a styling class. Like I put the Moto Guzzi twelve hundred Sports. This is, ooh, it, this is a supermodel. This thing just looks a way that nothing else looks. I, I, oh, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. I'm, I'm so into this bike. So the Italians own it with the style. Right. And again, if you're looking for a super sport, yes, an R6 will be slightly cheaper. But if you think about what the experience is and you realize that it's the real world experience of this bike is right in between the 601 liter inline four bikes. But it doesn't cost the, you know, because a, a one liter bike cost what, sixteen and a half thousand dollars about right now, depending. They're all pretty close. And it's about twelve and a half thousand dollars for a six hundred. Well, then you would expect the median price to be fourteen to fourteen and a half thousand dollars for this bike for something that delivers something exactly in between. But no, it's thirteen, and it looks way better. And you're in the Ducati Club, and it's just sex on wheels. This is a bike that looks so good. I dare say I think girls would be into this bike. Like, girls would think you're cooler for having this bike. And I'll tell you what, if you're riding as a woman, guys sure as shit think you're cool for having this bike. Th this bike ups your ups your status. Absolutely. And very few bikes really do that. There's a lot of bikes we think do that. This one really does it. And you don't have to drop $20,000 for the Panigale. And you really get all the street cred benefits for owning this. Now, I admit, back in the day, the old Ducati SSs, they never really quite delivered or lived up to what the 600s did. But this one does. And in fact, exceeds it in the real world. And if you're a talented enough rider on the track can exceed it as well if you have a riding style that you know this lends itself to so i i just challenge anyone if you're in the market for a 600 but you kind of feel like a wuss for buying one which is stupid but whatever if that's your mindset i challenge you come up with a reason not to buy this bike it's perfect i love it if i was without a bike right now mm, this this would really really speak to me. It's got all the power power characteristics that I like. Again, it's it's only just 
a few horsepower more than my Superhawk. This is exactly the kind of engine that I'm into. I love it. And there we go. Anyone got anything else to say about it? I think you've you've summed it up pretty well. All uh, right. So I would like to ride another one of these just because uh, I haven't been on one since long before I got used to my Buell and sport bikes in general. It would be cool to come back to it. Or maybe you can find one on Twisted Roads or something. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. The so, clutch isn't burnt out. Right. With that, let's uh, take a little break here and then come back with another segment. Okay, so now we're going to do another installment of our ever-increasingly popular series, How to Sound Like You Know What You're Talking About. And specifically, we're on a, a targeted run on this series where we're talking about mechanical signatures. So the thing we're going to talk about now is Buell and all of Buell's mechanical signatures, because I'm not aware of a single company that has so many mechanical signatures as Buell and EBR had. It's crazy. So let's start. Where should, should we start with the engine? Well, we we could go back. I mean, I, I'm always tempted to go back and just tell Buell's life, Eric Buell's life story, because I don't call him Eric Buell. I call him the mad genius Eric Buell. Right. <laughs> well, the Eric Buell story has been told very, mm-hmm. very many times, and it's a, it's a it's the closest America gets to a Greek tragedy. <laughs> so the th- the things I always like to point out because we did we so we talked about my Buell back in like episode two the first time I ever came on yeah um but uh the the things I I like to point out about Eric Buell is one he was born in Pittsburgh which I lived in Pittsburgh for a while so that's important yep. to me uh, I think he was I'm not an Eric Buell stalker but I think he was from like the Cranberry area he was up north and there's there's very cool twisted roads up in in the Pittsburgh area and he learned on those roads and then he started engineering bikes um he became a Harley engineer uh and then started with these wild breakthroughs. I believe the first thing he was doing was rubber mounts. His kind of his first signature was that the engines had rubber mounts onto the frame. Right, which old guys were not able to deal with initially when they first came into the bikes. <laughs> People are like, it doesn't shake as much. I fucking hate that. It's new. I'm into Harley. Fuck you. The these are the same people that have had problems with Harley's going to four valve or mm-hmm. these guys had a problem. The the people that, that were annoyed when Harley started doing rubber mounts were the same people that were annoyed that Harley went from side valve to overhead valve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he, uh, so he took those sportster engines and he got like what? 30% extra power out of them oh using, yeah using his modifications oh yeah the the yeah the the born stroke were reconfigured they were stroked out they made higher compression the valve timing was changed with hotter cams put in you mean bored out bored yeah yeah all, all sorts of anything you could think of to do to a sportster engine he did it but right up to that point that it's still a reliable engine because yeah there was even more power to be gotten out of it mm-hmm. 
And if you buy an XB9, there are things you could do to it to still squeeze more power. But that's when you're really running into reliability issues. Mm. So, yeah, a big signature of Buell was when you got a Buell, you were getting a Sportster engine that was essentially maxed out to the point of sensibility. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it was a Harley motor. But as time went on, they started having less and less interchangeable parts. And eventually they gave it its own name as the Thunderbolt engine to really designate that, yeah, this engine's made by Harley, but it's not really a Sportster motor anymore. It sure as hell looks like one, but this is a different animal. And if you've ridden an 883 or a 1200 and then ridden a Buell XB9 or XB12, they are very different animals. Mm. But other than that, and they all still the Buell, share Harley traits. Even within the XB9s, they're, they're very different from each other. And that's what's interesting is that he he really mo- – like the feel. I mean the ride of them. The, oh, yeah. The, the performance. Everything is – I mean they're they're very much the same bike with the XB frames. But just the, the whole feel, the whole animal, they're very different. I could see someone having four or five different XBs in their collection. Oh yeah, because the the whole like the city version, the the lightning, not the firebolt. Mm-hmm. That was the Yuli, yeah, the Ulysses. the Ulysses again. That one was different. Yeah, they, like were all, they were all they were all yeah, slightly off more sport other. touring kind of. But to get more more into the hardcore mm-hmm. mechanical signatures, because he was forced to use Buell engines, mm-hmm. so he had Harley to put engines. sorry he had to, he had to use Harley engines. So he was mm-hmm. forced to put his own spin on the Harley engine, and that was just what that was. Yeah, you know, I I looked up his signatures again. There was something up, there was something I remember reading that I didn't find this time. I want to say that his very first breakthrough was was a braking thing, like he replaced. Right. Was it magnesium? Is that what he did? Do you remember? I, I'm not sure where. I'm, I haven't read it much on the materials used in Buell brakes, but Buell brakes are very much their own thing. That was like the first Eric Buell patent. So it's he called it the ZTL brake, I believe. Oh, good out. And so Eric's idea with the brake was, well, rather than have two front disc rotors and two brake calipers, we can achieve the same amount of braking with less unsprung weight by just having one really gigantic brake rotor. Mm. And on the earlier versions, they were just six piston yeah he had like six piston front disc brakes and then eventually they moved on to eight so just a little fact here the only place i have seen the only area where i have seen this carried forward is in supermotos especially popular with the wrs uh-huh. is rather than to get that that sporty performance out of the brakes Rather than put dual front brakes on a WR450, mm-hmm. you get a new brake rotor that's larger, right. and then you just get a little bracket that extends the caliper out to mount and fit onto it. Oh. And, it's, and it's still a four So it doesn't piston. increase the pressure necessarily, but increases the surface area of the brake pad. Yeah, so the, the, the brake disc doesn't heat up as quickly. So right. ZTL stands for zero torsional load. There we go. Mm-hmm. So we go. the idea behind this brake was that they could make a brake that Inside weighed out. only like 80% of what a dual disc front brake setup weighs, 
but gives you the same braking performance. Now, this is important because this is weight stuck to the wheel, which is what we call unsprung mass. And unsprung mass is bad. So think about this. It is If you take a wheel that weighed, let's just say, 100 pounds, and then you suspend it above that wheel, 100 pounds of weight, and then you had to pull it with a rope, that would feel lighter and be easier to move than a 130-pound wheel, right? Because... Because it's just the you're wheel countering that's some heavier of that than unsprung you. weight. Right. The wheel helps you you're move heavier weight, right? Mm-hmm. When you push a motorcycle and it weighs 500 pounds, it's not like pushing 500 pounds, right? But pulling a 500-pound wheel would be a lot more difficult. Well, it's also the way that the suspension works. Right. If you think about your car going over a speed bump at you know 20 miles an hour going through a school zone, and then... You know, think about how that performs with all the weight, when all the weight is sprung and the wheels can bounce up. And then imagine just throwing, you know, rolling a bowling ball at 20 miles an hour at that speed bump Mm. and what the bowling ball is going to do. Having all the weight sprung on the wheels allows it to compensate and smooth out the movement. And on top of Mm. that, it also... Having the weight above the wheels and sprung down allows you to, in that act of compensation and pressing the wheels down under a sprung load, it makes sure that the wheels are constantly pressed into the ground as as consistently as possible, Mm. which is what gives you traction, which is what allows you to accelerate under load. Right. Okay, and and so, that's what led him to his next. Well, I just want to say, so some people really hate the ZTL brake, and there's really only a couple arguments against it. One is that some people don't like the way that it looks, which is because the brake is actually mounted to the rim of the wheel rather than the disc almost just being a bracket that attaches to the center hub. And some people just don't like the way it looks, which is dumb. And they think that the brake caliper looks strange being inserted on the inside of the disc rather than the outside. They just can't deal with the way that it looks. And if that's your argument, get over yourself. And then there's a myth that some people have that when they brake, it makes the bike pull to a side that the the, the, the rotor's on. This is also false. I've never noticed that. So, exactly, yeah. People are just haters, and really the reason that they're not doing this in MotoGP or whatever is that you're in a racing situation you are asking just one caliper to do all the work so should something go wrong there's not another caliper that can sort of take its place and at least provide half the braking and then also eric buell has a patent on this so for like another like 10 or 12 years no one else is allowed to manufacture it for production for sale so there you go it's an amazing <laughs> idea. It works beautifully. I can tell you it works beautifully because I've used it, and it's wonderful. So there you go. 
Now, to move on to his next idea, which has to do with weight, most of Eric Buell's ideas had to do with weight. And some of them are ideas that other people had thought of as well. But Eric Buell really took some of these ideas and ran with them. And Eric was obsessed with the idea, well, I'm sure he still is, of low centralized mass. And everything about the bikes he made was an effort to try to get the weight lower mm. and towards the center of the bike. Now, before you talk about the, the XB series, mm -hmm. um, there's something else he did with unsprung weight. Okay. And that was that, and it was just for a little. So the earlier bikes, so the Buell's kind of split between what, what they're, what they call the tubers and the fuelers. The two, tuber just means tube frame bikes, uh, which were the first they made from like 84 to, um, I guess, oh, 2002, cause 03 was when the first XBs came out. Yep. That's right. Um, so, cause mine's an 03. Um, but sometime around 91, he put out, a uh um he he put out an extra um shock oh. like un under the engine itself oh yes yeah to 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 further reduce the unsprung weight so the actual engine had this shock absorber to it right there was not a rear shock yeah this is something i was going to get on Buells don't have rear suspension the rr or the rs series i think yeah Buells don't have rear suspension, or some of them didn't have rear suspension, in the way that you normally expect. Rather than the suspension, a big single shock being underneath the back seat going from the swing arm to the subframe like you would normally expect to see, or just to the back of the regular frame like you would normally expect to see, they transferred it so the compression of the spring was underneath the engine where you would expect an ex an under under engine exhaust to run moving weight down mm -hmm. absolutely crazy and it worked now we did mention a worse bike in the world this week which was the like 96 yeah. buell st3 yeah you you use this as an this example suspension of <laughs> the, the suspension system and it was a good suspension system I've never Didn't ridden make this. up for how horrible this bike was in every other sense, but I've never ridden that bike, so I don't know what how how it handles or whether hate that's them a good because there are so many other cheaper and better Buells you can get that do everything better. Mm -hmm. It's just a weird oddity on the road to Buells really becoming Buells. Mm -hmm. There, as far as the framers go, some of the purists really like those bikes better. I kind of feel like Buell didn't fully become Buell until the X. And yeah, series. I agree. I agree. But there's so there are some cool. I see them come up on like my on my uh, computer feeds, like Instagram and stuff. Yeah, there are some really nice looking uh, tube frame. I'm Buells. never going to be able to get over the fact that people voluntarily called themselves framers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tubers, <laughs> tubers, and framers. It's weird, yeah. but anyway. So then. Going on to, uh, since you said that, let's talk about fuel and frame. So plenty of other people have done fuel and frame. There are old weird British bikes that were doing some fuel and frame kind of things, technically going back to the 50s and 60s. But never before did a brand of motorcycle just go, look, everything that we do is this fuel and frame design. We have got this platform of this frame that holds gas 
and we figured out how to get the pump in there and everything and make everything serviceable. And we're going to make a variation of this frame across every model of bike that we do. Because that's really the only reason that no one else does fuel and frame across the board or even in any real mass sense still today is that in order to do it, you have to commit to it being your thing. And so that means that you really marry yourself to this specific frame style. And you might have to make some concessions in terms of frame flexibility and how much your frame weighs and those sorts of things in order to achieve this. But if you do go full whole hog on the idea of fuel and frame, well, you do lower your mass, everything, you know, all the way to the fuel, which is what, 10 pounds a gallon, roughly? Uh, I think it's like six pounds. Okay, wait, six pounds a gallon. So a three and a half gallon tank, which is about as small a gas tank as you'll see on a bike these days, we're still talking 20 pounds there. And you're moving that all down, you know, five to six inches or more easily. All of that fuel going right down. And that gives you a couple different strange advantages. You... 6.3 pounds. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so over 20 pounds at the minimum, you're lowering weight. I guarantee you there's about six people who this really matters for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck those people <laughs> no no actually if you're one of those people i secretly love you not so secretly i just said it on the show <laughs> anyway um so yeah there we go uh fuel and frame kind of a wonderful idea now if you really really badly abuse a buell and you just leave gas sitting it people have been like well have you just rotted out your whole frame mm -hmm. of the bike then rather than just being able to replace the tank? Is that a problem? I, I'm going to be honest. I haven't looked into it that it's, much. There's but you probably know more about that, Mike. Uh, I don't know for certain. There is a, it's called a twin spar hollow aluminum frame. So it has like this twin spar main stru structure. Yeah. And then the, the, the frame around so i'm pretty sure you can't eat through the structural component of your frame now i do know that the world's most expensive motorcycle the meduel uses this exact same system so it can't be that garbage <laughs> right right no matter what your complaints are about it but it doesn't really matter if it's good or bad what's important is that it does have a definite advantage to using it and buell did this on Everything mm -hmm. after 2003. Yeah. Absolutely every single bike. And I'll, I'll just and mention... no one else has ever done that. It is a hard mechanical mm -hmm. signature. Yeah. And just for the uninitiated, um, all, you, all you Buell fans already know this, but the swing arm itself is the oil reservoir. So That's not, where we were going to go mm -hmm. next. Yeah. yeah. So, Which is, by the way, the sexiest swing arm in all of cycling history. I, I kind of agree. So... Well, um, I don't. Do you want to take this one with the the why it's a uh, a dry sump motor on this one, Swigs? No, you can take it. Okay, so Harley engines are dry sump motors, which means that in the transmission box and everything, there is not a oil sump 
and a place within the engine casings to hold all the oil for it to then be pumped and circulated around the engine. The oil in Harleys is remote. This is just a Harley thing. Well, there's a mechanical advantage to it, to having – because you can – with the pump, you can deliver the constant little little squirt of oil continuously. Well, you could do that still if you have a wet sump. But – the, the the big the big advantage is you can move the oil reservoir to wherever you want to place the weight wherever mm-hmm. you want. But Harley was always pretty lazy about this and usually just stuck it underneath the seat. Mm-hmm. But yeah, l- Buell went, well, hold on a second. We can just do the same thing with the swing arm that we did with the gas tank. And we'll put a pump back there. And so the whole swing arm is gigantic looking on a Buell motorcycle, but there's a dipstick on it, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. And there's a pump and all your oil goes in the back there. And I have to say, this kind of makes oil changes on Buells pretty easy to do, which is a really nice little bonus. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, again, you're moving all that liquid weight as low as it can possibly go. Forget about down to the frame level. We're down to the axle level in terms of getting the weight mm. down low here. And that's really cool. Mm. And I haven't really heard anything about any like reliability problems with the pumps and that oil system or anything. As many complaints as there's all kind of people no, they, haters they that have, will poke holes in all of these little things about them. But I haven't heard anyone ever complain about oil circulation problems mm. or anything because of this system. You'll only read about it on the Buell forums and Eric Buell being the mad genius Eric Buell. He ironed them out in the first one to two years. Okay. So what else have we got for Buell and mechanical signatures here? Because there's a few others, I'm sure. Uh, what do I have? Let's see. Uh, underslung exhaust pipe. Uh, right. So, yeah, again, all Buells took the exhaust and the muffler. Now, by the time they got to the XB system, they abandoned the uh, the under-engine suspension system Mm -hmm. and they went back to a more of a traditional rear monoshock they still have the rubber because that's all that's an eric buell signature all the way back to the beginning so they still have the rubber mounts which unfortunately we are starting to get to the point where eric where buell parts are starting to get scarce and that is the first kind of critical component oh yeah rubber rubber just doesn't last yeah and that that is first the first critical component where people are saying your bike could be grounded eternally because these aren't available but you know i mean rubber you can make aftermarket it's i haven't checked if one's available now but um originally back when i bought my bike two years ago that was the thing people were saying is hey these parts are starting to get scarce Right. So the underslung exhaust. Plenty of other people have done this as well. But again, I'm not aware of another manufacturer that went 100% not just exhaust running underneath the engine, but also having the entirety of the muffler underneath the engine in every single model across the board. I've never seen a, a bike like it. If well, did anybody I mean, else? Oh, even, there are plenty of other ones. Did anybody but, else even go for underslung exhausts that early? 
I'm sure there were some, but again, to do it that early as like 2003 across every model of bike and plenty of bikes have the exhaust going underneath and certainly four into four exhausts have had them going down low since, you know, the sixties and seventies, but for it to go completely underneath the engine and then stop there and for it to include the muffler. I don't think anyone else has even come close to this level of commitment to low centralized weight with the exhaust system. Like not this even does close. remind me of this, this whole and conversation. Again, this is possible because there's not an oil sump underneath the engine. Right. This whole conversation just brings me back to when we, um, when we were riding back from Carhenge after the eclipse. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we, we touched on this in the uh, in the first time I came on this show, yeah. but but yeah. yeah, for new listeners, we uh, much much earlier. Well, I guess it was almost. Oh geez, it was almost a year ago. It was your second episode? Yeah, we haven't done it for a year. It's been, it was, it was like yeah, six it's more than a year ago. It was no. Like six months ago. No, uh, was it six months ago? No, it's been. Longer we weren't than that, doing but, the podcast. It was like March. Six seven months ago was it that recent? God damn. Okay. Anyway, yeah. So the guy, the guy I bought this during the from, eclipse, yeah. we we rode to Carhenge, and my bike was out of order, and Mike had to drive his family up there. And if you don't know Carhenge, it's Stonehenge made out of junk cars in the middle With of Nebraska. Alliance Gremlins Nebraska. and AMC Pacers, <laughs> right on the path of the uh, of it the was like, total eclipse. It was like automotive Burning Man because. I rode Mike's Buell up there, and Swiggy rode the W6. It's an XB9R firebolt, in case I hadn't said that. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it was in various levels of repair and on its way to where it is now. And on the way back, well, first of all, the guy that Mike bought it from had completely gutted the muffler. It, it was a muffler in name only. It was the kind of muffler yeah, that you're like... Yeah, it was like, just running an open exhaust yeah. system. It was unreasonably loud when Th this muffler was what do you mean officer it has a muffler the muffler's right there well you crashed <laughs> it on riding it up to my place and i remember i held yeah, on I to laid it, it down and was doing little small jobs to it in exchange for riding, riding it, it while yeah, my bike was it. out of out of service and so i probably spent about two months of riding this bike around and when i used to go to like gas stations and fill it up Guys with their big Harleys would come by and they'd be filling up. And then I would fire this thing and I would see their eyes get super excited. Like, oh my God, there's a huge hog near me blowing open pipes, breathing real easy. <laughs> Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And, and like, then they would, I'm not unslung anymore. Yeah, see me hiding behind a gas pump with this tiny little bike making gigantic noise. And their dicks just fell limp. <laughs> they were like, oh, no, man. If only they knew enough about bikes to know that it was a Harley engine and it was making more power than their big cruiser. Like, we all could have been friends. Because I wanted to be. Because when I rode that bike, I felt like, oh, maybe I'm in the Harley club. Like, this is really cool. No, they didn't accept me. It was not, it was not that no. way. But, yeah, I remember when we were getting out of Carhenge. Oh yeah, or, yeah sorry. As, we were as, talking about the exhaust. As, the as we were trying about Buell as, exhaust. Yeah, yeah. It's a story about about a Buell. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> 
This song's about Alice. <laughs> Y'all remember Alice? Right. Song's who's about who's Alice. telling our dual exhaust story? <laughs> so anyway, yeah. But yeah. Go with it, sweetie. But as we were leaving Alliance, Nebraska, as soon as the road opened up, because this bike was just, and as you know, the Firebolt does not idle well. Mm. It it doesn't want. It's like a dog Certainly being held not back with the on the open leash. exhaust. It did not <laughs> idle well, so it was running just super rich for ages, just trying to idle. Especially it, those super aggressive with those super aggressive forks. This and bike would just spit fireballs out of the back of it for no reason. Oh, it yeah. was great. And at a certain point, like the traffic finally just opened up and we got to the intersection where traffic was splitting. It's like, Oh, we can go now. And I, I remember you opened it up and just like pulled away. And then you were just like, Oh Jesus Christ. What did I just hit? And I saw something like roll under the bike. It's like, Oh, I just think he hit a bit of ground off tire tread or something. Yeah. And then it's like, there's a lot of noise coming through the Cena from you all of a sudden. What's, uh, what's, <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. I'm okay. I'll turn it down a little bit. I'm, I'm just going to turn it down a little bit. Just, just talk a bit louder. And then about a hundred miles later, we get to the gas station. We realize the entire muffler just blew out. Well, there well, was okay. like three inches of it still. Left. So out <laughs> <laughs> of this, like, and a Buell muffler is large too. Yeah, it's like probably what you say, like nineteen inches, probably something yeah, like that. Yeah. Like, think think of a breakfast burrito, but then make it like <laughs> the length of your entire forearm. <laughs> probably longer yeah, than yeah. that, honestly. And, the, and so what this engineer had done, because the guy I bought it from was like he he replaced it with you know an what EBR. it's almost the exact dimensions mm. of, and this is weird because motorcycles don't really have anything like this. What a Buell has underneath it, at least an XB series, is what looks like almost identical to a Thrush car muffler. Yeah, right yeah. underneath the bottom of this motorcycle, it legitimately does, yeah. and that blew into pieces. Mm. Well, because, the, the guy I bought it from, uh, I, I I've already told this story, but he's a uh, um, he was an engineer, and so he did some awesome stuff to the bike because it's a bike for engineers. But the thing he did to the muffler was he basically sawed the back third of it off and then gutted it and uh, and then soldered it back together and like painted no, it. No, welded it welded. back together very shittily. Yeah, that was not too great. <laughs> he was he was a student at the time. He graduated engineering no, points, school. Bought himself an EBR. Big points for like going there and mm. just diving into the project and getting it done. And to his credit, it held for some years. Mm-hmm. Well, then I laid it down, and, and then the I mo- then I mm-hmm. was introduced to the bike, and those welds did not hold up anymore. And and <laughs> what about, you there's about nine wheelies, and then one big like pull away on the highway, and then that muffler <laughs> let go. And so what you lost was the back third of the muffler, and the remaining two thirds stayed on was it that much i feel like i blew off two-thirds of it but it could be just and, been a third and then the rest of it went when you were out on your own up in Greeley, because you called me well that's true i kept riding it for another week with just half like with just the open muffler <laughs> i forgot about that because i was just so tickled at how stupid the volume was i really like i was like well it was an open exhaust system anyway i'm not i haven't changed the tuning the 
only thing that has changed is the volume. And if no one's pulling me over, what the fuck do I care? And it only became a big deal when there's obviously no visible muffler attached to the bike <laughs> that you could blame it on. Yeah, yeah, because more and more pieces of the muffler kept disintegrating <laughs> off of it over the course of weeks. It was great. And when I so the, and that guy, the guy who sold it to me, said, "Oh, I won a loud pipes competition with this bike," and I'm, I'm like, "I'm not okay. surprised. I would have fucking and, schooled him even." <laughs> the whole thing blew in half it was ridiculously and, loud and so when i finally got the replacement muffler on there i i, I heard that thing purr for the first proper time and oh it's nice and not backfire every time you let off <laughs> <Yeah>. the throttle <laughs> yeah my neighbors in castle rock like like me a little bit better now <laughs> wonderful so um, let's say any more little Beatles um, signatures because I feel like there are a couple more. The the only other thing that I know anything about, well, I actually don't know much about this stainless steel braided brake lines. That's nah, common across common. Okay. some premium bikes, but, but it's very nice to have a standard. It is. It is. Um, uh, he also said that his wraparound fairing, even even on my model, which doesn't have the full body fairing, it still has this. Where you can kind of hide yeah, yourself in the fairing. Yeah, all the mules to some degree involve some like wind tunnel tested aerodynamics, but a lot mm. of people do that. It's not a, it's not so unique. Yeah, but the aerodynamics apparently still hold their own even a decade after the bikes have come out. Oh yeah, a lot of bikes have gone backwards in aerodynamics mm. for the sake of for the sake of styling because mm. power has increased so much, mm. and in terms of a real world bike. Everything has been so overpowered for more than a decade now that people don't even have to really worry about aerodynamic design at all. It just doesn't really come into play because the mm. bikes are so stupid powerful. Mm. So, yeah, in closing, we've got Buell with um, a distinct under-engine under suspension system, under-engine full exhaust system under-slung. We've got the stroked out, completely distinct kind of Harley motor, which is weird for Harley to even allow someone to take their motor and change it so much for production well, under a different name. We've got oil, uh, oil and swing arm. Just, just a little bit more about um, fuel and frame. A little more about how Eric, how Buell got involved with Harley. He created first. He bought actually bought where they called Burton engines. Uh, he actually bought a motorcycle company that was failing and mm-hmm. like he bought the rights to it and he modified this Burton engine. Uh, and basically as each, as each part failed, he just came up with a replacement for it. And he said like he chucked, he chucked the entire frame, uh, and kind of kept just the engine and it wasn't a very good engine, but slowly he made it better. And that was what, that was before he signed his deal with Harley. So it was just Buell motor company independent. And or Buell Motorcycle Company independently, yeah. and then he he start he was putting but Harley that original engine, engine was a V twin engine, and he was putting Harley engines in racers anyway because he recognized that that heavy power, beefy power, um, the that, big uh, that, torque, yeah, that a leader bike can give you in in, in the race applications, right, of it. just like Ducati, same same racing philosophy. And when and before he signed with Harley. Because of his Harley connections, because he had worked with them before, um, he was able to get access to the 1203cc engine uh, and 
he got like a a boatload of factory extras of those and that's when he started doing the signature bike that Harley then latched onto. Yeah, that's so, cool. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a unique story and I I'm, I'm not aware. Like there's no way that you know, let's take someone who was a successful racer but you know, sort of at the top level but never won big championships like Max Biaggi. Like Max Biaggi would never become an engineer and then get a job at Honda designing bikes and then getting an offshoot brand, right? Well, like this is an insane story, but that is the Eric Buell story essentially. And not everyone at Harley was into it. Like not all the executives were into it. There were a couple. Oh, they hated it. And as soon as they ran into hard financial times, he was, Buell was the first up against the wall when the mm-hmm. revolution came. Well, it was a new, yeah, I, I said this before, but there was a new manager who came in and the first words out of his mouth were Buell's done for, basically. Yeah. Like, you know, let's consolidate and just do what we've always done even more. Mm-hmm. Which up until 2018 put them out of the sport bike market. Put them out of any market except for their core one. But though, then we, then we realized they, they did about four years ago realize they were headed for disaster if they didn't do something yeah. else. Which you guys have done in another episode. But, but anyway, just to summarize here, like I said, Buell, we've got the under engine suspension system. We've got fuel and frame. We've got the ztl braking system we've got fuel in swing arm oil and swing oil oil and swing arm sorry we've got the underslung complete exhaust Mm -hmm. plenty of people do underslung exhaust we've got underslung complete exhaust and just a drive to move everything towards low centralized mass and this is crazy every single buell adheres to these and this is across adventure bikes, standard bikes, super sport bikes, and beginner bikes. That kind of range of different models, all adhering to these mechanical signatures, this outdoes Moto Guzzi in terms of dogmatic adherence to mechanical signatures. And not only that, all these mechanical signatures are more unique to Buell than a lot of other mechanical signatures are to other brands. Yeah, that's definitely true. So Buell really stands out this way and hats off. And so when someone says to you like, oh, Buells are weird bikes, maybe now you know a little bit more about what makes them so weird and so quirky and so fun. Even though there are bikes that outperform them or do different things or do things better now it's kind of worth remembering how many trails buell blazed and set the groundwork for other people to come after him it's really important to the history of motorcycles it's important to the history of american motorcycles and it's just a cool fun story if you're wondering what eric buell is doing today Vanguard. Yeah, he's yeah. one third owner of Vanguard. We might have to see if we can get him on the show just because I want to talk <laughs> to him. And, <laughs> yeah, good luck. Well, no, seriously. Yeah, he might because I, not many people want to talk about Vanguard, but I would love to interview Eric Buell on the basis of not talking about Buell or EBR and only talking about what he's bringing to Vanguard. Do you think uh, you'll see any Vanguard stuff in Vegas? We'll see. By, by the way, these guys are driving to Vegas tonight. 
That's true. In about another one hour. Right. It's, a, it's 11 p.m. as we record this. So hold on. Let's take another little break here, and then we're going to come back with one last thing, and then we're going to head out to Vegas. Okay, and we're back. We haven't done this for a long time. We haven't done this since the last time we did it with Dr. Mike Action. And so we're going to play another round of our game, Made Up Motorcycle. I love this game. I don't know how much listeners are into this. It seems that our episodes that we've done this are some of our least listened to episodes. I think this game originated in episode 13 just on the fly at the very end of it. I just made up this game on the spot. We didn't have the name Made Up Motorcycle for it, but it was pretty fun. I think that's when we did, like, you you threw those names at me, The Spork and some other ones. <laughs> yeah. And then we, we turned it into a game afterwards. So what this game is, is we go around in a circle. We usually pick a theme, or we each pick a theme that we're going to suggest our names from. And then everyone just sort of makes up what that motorcycle would be on the spot. And usually hilarity ensues. But this is an improvisational game. I have no idea what's going to happen. So with that, what's your theme for this one, Sweetie? My theme is Ninja Turtle villains. Whoa, that's good. <laughs> okay, my theme is Spanish words that Americans know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And then my th- my theme again like the last time we did this is going to be geography. Excellent. Okay. So, let's start with you, Swiggy. Throw us the first one. Okay. So, the first one it will be the rock steady. Whoa, the rock steady. This is this is tough. Okay. No, it's not tough. It's it's very easy. It's the oh, okay. it's Tell the me. competition for the heaviest production motorcycle ever made. <laughs> okay. It, it's the it's the rocket and um and um um So like the Triumph Rocket Three or something? Yeah, yeah. Triumph Rocket Three and um uh what is it, the Kawasaki Vulcan um uh two thousand, let's say. <laughs> That's probably the heaviest one. Valkyrie. That's what I was trying to. Yeah, oh, the Honda the, Valkyrie. Yeah, Honda Valkyrie. There we go. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Rock Steady would have to be. Okay, let's develop this further. It would have to be. So this is a a cruiser, and it's going to be somewhat of a power cruiser, but it's going to be ridiculously heavy. This is a bike that isn't afraid to be super excess. This is like 2006 ridiculously excess power cruiser sort of category. So it's got to have something stupid. Like It's not going to go for a full-on like V8 engine or something like that, but it's going to be like a two, two-and-a-half liter inline four or a two-and-a-half liter V-twin. It's going to go over the top and be heavy on the engine, but it's going to be heavy on the frame. But because it's so Goldwing, but just more of a traditional cruiser – It can afford to be even heavier and not give a fuck. So it's going to have things like, like a, like instead of like a backrest for a pillion, the back seat, like the pillion seat is just a full on seat armrests. 
and everything with no pretension of a of a top box behind the seat or anything. There's just a full on seat built on like you know when you see someone pulling a child in like a little car seat thing attached to the back of their bicycle. Mm. This has the motorcycle equivalent of that. <laughs> Just a full on almost bark a lounger <laughs> stuck to the back of it. <laughs> right. And it's, so it's, you said the rock steady as well. Well, that's got to like move into something with the suspension. So this is going to have like Unilever BMW front suspension, but it's going to go even crazier with Unilever back suspension as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We got it. Rock study. (laughs) Okay. All right. So I'll do one now. So, uh, yeah, Spanish words that Americans know. Uh, this is a little bit of a cheat because this is also a car name, and I just bought one of these. This is kind of like my genesis for this category, the Fiesta. Okay, so this is going to be a really fun bike, and it's kind of – it's not so much a dual sport as it is a – it's going to be somewhere between just a, a dual sport and a standard. And the whole concept is that it's going to be really good for – for kind of like small town Mexican roads. Okay. So the, you're going to see this in heavy rotation with um what are they called? Uh What are the the what, J- Jawas? No, with um Oh jeez, what are they called? Uh with tuk-tuks. Bajaj? No, uh, with tuk-tuks, like the, the three-wheeler with the carriage on the back. Like tricycle, bicycle. Like tri- yeah. Yeah, just tricycles. Oh, like the motorized rickshaw sort of. Yeah. Okay. The, it's that kind of environment is where these are going to thrive. Okay, okay. So, mm-hmm. so chaos traffic, like you, like a man must make his own justice sort of traffic. Right. So, something's welded and there's some duct tape. But it They're needs a few to, years old. But it needs to be both practical and... It needs to be nimble, but also kind of comfortable at the same time. Mm. So it's not an upright single cylinder. It's a flat cylinder, as low as single cylinder, as low as possible. Okay. To get the maximum amount of, like, to lower the center of gravity as much as possible. Because it's going to have a canopy and everything, like a tuk-tuk. And, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. I got something. Be no, it's gonna have you, a canopy. No, you're, like a, you're out. You're you're disqualified. Okay. 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 So, <laughs> and it's gonna have. It's gonna be very similar to. It's it's almost gonna be like a a mix of a. It's gonna be a mix of a. Jeez, uh, how am I blanking on this? It's gonna be a mix of a super cub and. Mm. A and a ruckus. It's gonna be like a 300 cc single built into the swing arm like a scooter with the body of a ruckus, and it's gonna come stock with like almost like almost like a big windshield type fairing with like the knee guards and everything. But they're gonna make it a little bit sporty, so that windshield's gonna be really short and like come towards you. So it's gonna be sporty, 
but it's very practical and it's very pedestrian at the same time. Okay. So when I thought of this idea, I could not I, I couldn't help myself but thinking to myself what it would be. And you're ridiculously close to what I was envisioning. So I also envisioned something like a bajaj, like sort of tuk tuk situation, right? A, 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 like a rickshaw motorized sort of thing. I'm with you. It's it's got a canopy like a tuk tuk, but only in the back not in the front for the driver. The front has a much more sportier look to it, just like you're talking about. It's low down weight and the, and with a flat cylinder, just like you said. Here's why, though. Because the rear of this bike, this thing has a torsion bar. It's a three-wheeler, and it's got a torsion bar to the back two wheels. So you're carrying passengers, but the whole body of the bike rolls side to side almost like a k&m so the passengers on this bike lean with you as you're negotiating like sketchy traffic that's horrifying (laughs) oh wow all right it needs um uh, it needs the canopies so that you can sell wares off the back of it like it like yeah, yeah, Other you, Mexican could, you could convert it to a, a mobile little wear mm. shop as well, a little habit, a little mobile haberdashery or whatever. And because it's a Fiesta, you and and it's the modern era, you need that button on it that allows it to drive you home when you're passed out drunk <laughs> in the basket. Yeah, it's gonna have a it's gonna have a zero <laughs> slash Tesla slash BMW Honda self driving system for when the driver gets inevitably <laughs> thrown off the thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, Fiesta, go. good. All right, let's go with you, Mike. All right, you okay, geography. This one, the Mogadishu. Oh, man, the Mogadishu. <sighs> if, if you don't know, Mogadishu is the capital of Somalia. Yeah, no, I, okay. know, okay. I know, I know, I know. Okay. So, the Mogadishu. <laughs> okay, so can-am has just started doing some uh, like trying to mix up its line a little bit they got like the Riker is the new one right something like that well people aren't responding to that very well they're sort of going like why do i want this less options less you know more bare bones can-am it kind of defeats the purpose of a can-am it, the initial public response to it is I don't feel like that's what Can-Am wants. And I've been saying that Can-Am needs to go back to motorcycles. But what really Can-Am and Bombardier have always excelled at is snowmobiles and sea dews. So is this amphibian? This is amphibian. <laughs> And this is, it's it's not going to be meant this way. This is going to be a motorcycle which has like ballast on the side. And there's some way you can convert the drive to go from wheels and then convert the power to a small jet motor to make it amphibian. There'll be like a huge handle you can pull. So this is going to, this will be like the pirate's go to. So this will this will be uh you had me at pirate. Okay, so this is what it'll be. This will be a sort of Can-Am spider design. And but what they'll do is they'll make it a little bit bigger uh-huh. and they'll give it some less sporty suspension and give it more of an off-road rugged. So it's almost like a more stable like classic off-road trike 
Yeah. And to make it more reliable, they're going to run a shaft drive to the back. And what people are going to do is, put props on is, is not even like have a mode to switch. It's going to, they're just going to expose the drive shaft out the back and just weld a prop, a weld a prop <laughs> to it. Yeah. And they're going to try and put like storage inside the front, like behind the front wheels. And people are going to realize they can just put air bladders in those to make it float. <laughs> You see, wonderful. I I, I want to say it makes me think of Mad Max, what you're describing. But what's more accurate this are is, those ships in Waterworld, like those little yeah. spears. Yeah. <laughs> the Mogadishu, I like it. But they're gonna find out if you make it float by adding this ballast to these to the the storage up front. It actually just barely gets the air box out of the water. Right. And when it's, when it's in the water, like the whole back is almost at like a 45 degree angle, but it works. I love it. All right. Top points. Okay. Are, are, so are we doing two rounds of this? Or? At least. All right. So give us another one, sweetie. Oh, if we're only doing two rounds, I'm going to have to jump to my. We'll see what we got time for. Let's see how we, how we go. All right. Well, this. I'll do the, I'll, I'll do the other one first. Uh, Two is obviously going to be the shredder. The shredder. Okay, so it's a Suzuki. The Suzuki shredder. It could that yeah, I like the little Because it goes along with the bandit and Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. The shredder. Okay, Suzuki Shredder. I think what Suzuki is going to do now that everyone's getting a little bit over the three the 250 to 300 to 400 entry level market bike that suzuki is going to update the gsx 300 is that what this or 310 what is the gsx one the small one is it a there's a 250 oh it's a two it's still 250 that's right suzuki is going to stay solid to the 250 displacement for their entry level bike but what they're going to do is they're going to introduce the Suzuki GSX 250R Shredder, which is going to be the exact same Suzuki GSX 250R with a supercharger. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to call it. it the Shredder. And it's going to be this bizarre cult bike that people are in love with for no good reason <laughs> bullseye <laughs> okay all right and just are we gonna top that yeah well Should okay we just, so. just because it's called the shredder <laughs> you have a, it has a special feature where you can wheel it over into your backyard and open a special case on it where there's a blade and it allows you to do wood chipping Oh no, I think even better than that. I think though you could put something onto the rear sprocket to extend it so it becomes like this weird earth tiller. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh going back to my uh yeah, uh Spanish words that Americans know, I've got the queso. The queso. Oh. Mm. Okay, the queso 
is going to be uh, the equivalent of a very small displacement. It's going to be shaped like a motorcycle, but it's essentially going to be a moped. Okay. And it's going to be... It's going... This is going to be a a Mexican electric equivalent small displacement dirt bike. All right. And it's designed to cross the desert. And the whole, the reason it's called the queso is because this is an electric bike perfectly designed for sand. All right. So you're, you're evoking smooth power delivery to the ground and just, you know, with the, with the color of sand and the desert, it's, it's smooth. Like and you said this is electric? Yes. Okay, you're you're really close to what I envisioned. Because, again, I couldn't help but think what this would be. <laughs> and so I just thought of the name, and then I was, like, walking around work for a couple of days, like, man, this is a really unfair name to give the guys <laughs> to try to come up with something. But I justified it on the fact that I came up with a weird angle, which is also an electric bike. I thought, so... BMW is going to get into the electric game. Now they're, they're thinking about getting the electric game with scooters and there's kind of making some models that might be brought to market and might make some good sense, but they haven't really brought us anything in terms of concepts for a full size electric bike. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be just like BMW to come to market with a full on sports tour electric bike that isn't quite ready yet. <laughs> okay. And so I thought Well after after the C one fifty, anything's possible. So I thought, <laughs> what if BMW and this isn't really all that ridiculous, they made a sort of K series bike, but they made it electric. And so the designation was the KS Zero. And it was so garbage that everyone just called it the K So. (laughs) (laughs) I think you guys got it. All right. I'm not touching that one. Okay. All right, Mike, give us another. <laughs> All right. So uh, another one in the geography category. Uh, this one is going to be the uh, the Kaliningrad. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. So, All right. So here's what this bike is. This is essentially a survivalist motorcycle. They're going to, the, the, the Russians, the, someone is going to buy not Ural, but they're going to they're going to re they're going to unearth some old russian motorcycle name mm-hmm. or maybe they'll just take Ural and they'll revamp it because you there were russian military bikes made by Ural or whatever mm-hmm. they'll, they'll they'll go back to that and they'll take a bike that's not unlike that but they'll bring it a little bit more modern they'll make it liquid cooled and all these things and this will be a bike just made for the modern russian military Hmm. okay and but what they're going to do is they're either going to go with electric or a flat motor right 
And it won't even be a flat boxer motor. It'll be like a flat twin, you know, pointing straight down, you know? Yeah, yeah. And what that will allow for is an air box that instead of, like, let's say the Honda NC700, where that's a glove box to put all sorts of useful things, there won't even be something that looks like a tank in front of the rider. What there'll be is a bunch of hand tool earth moving equipment. So as this bike is going through the Ural mountains or the crazy snow or whatever in, in wartime, mm -hmm. when the bike inevitably gets stuck, it has this full set of shovels and pickaxes and a winch mm. and all this just sitting in front of the rider in a compact bolted together yeah, yeah. area for them to dig the motorcycle out and move it to where it needs to go. So you're describing like an ice breaking ship for motorcycles. Yeah, it's a motorcycle <laughs> ice breaking ship. That is what this bike is. Is this motorcycle I maybe designed to um yeah, once global warming finally like just goes crazy, this bike is designed to just ride along um like Ride mud, along, <laughs> ride along train tracks in like the road of bones or something. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and just across Russia on a train yeah, track. Like yeah, yeah, Thoreau, go across Siberia. Yeah, go exactly. across Siberia along the train tracks, and it just goes ahead like a day ahead of every train that crosses Siberia, and. And it just finds every breakage in the line in all these crazy adverse weather conditions. And mm -hmm. is, its whole purpose is just to clear the tracks ahead of the train. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Train track clearing. That's even better. Part of this will be like a little, like, sort of broom sort of looking thing that's exactly the width of train tracks, but it'll have a hinge on it. So it folds up compactly nice, again yeah. where the, the tank would have been, but it unfolds and it sort of gets guided into the train track area. And this bike just clears train tracks on the Trans-Siberian Railway to enable troop and ammunitions movement for when China and Russia finally go at it which is like mm -hmm. probably the big war the world hasn't seen yet mm -hmm. yeah well i like okay you guys got it I'll, I'll just add it should be able with what you're describing i think it should be able to burn uh the body fat of the brown bear <laughs> oh for fuel now, here's the thing about this bike. It won't actually have that name. That's what everyone's going to call it because it's actually the Leningrad. The, it's it? not going to be called the Leningrad by by it's actually going to be called the Putin, but all the soldiers <laughs> are going to call it the Leningrad. Okay. All right, all right. That's going to be its nickname. It's it's officially going to be called the Putin mm. by the Russian army. And for sale outside of the Soviet bloc, they'll just call it the, the Cossack or something. Right. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Mm. Okay. Um, I kind of feel like we've had six home runs in a row. That's and we're just good. pushing it if we go any further there. Let's go one more round. One more round? Yeah. Okay, let's go. All right, all right. All right. So for my last bike, 
This is like saying one more beer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> one more round. Just one What's more on? pint. So for my last for my last uh my last bike. The leatherhead. <gasps> oh my god. Okay. So panhead. So you say leatherhead, but I immediately go leather face in my mind and I'm imagining chainsaws. But uh, don't like um. Wait, no, hold on, hold on, no, I take it back. I take it all back. I take it all back. So, this is the leatherhead because old football players used to be called leatherheads, and like a quarter horse, this is a miniature sprint bike. Mm-hmm. Like, forget quarter miles. They're going to start doing 50 and 100 yard sprint races, drag races. And so this is a electric bike Hmm. with a battery designed to give maximum torque and acceleration, but only have a range of 50 to 100 yards. (laughs) (laughs) You're kind of, (laughs) it's like the electric version of a rocket bike. Right. Well, at that point, it's not going to go very far. (laughs) At that point, you don't even have a battery. You just have a giant capacity. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Forget electric. Just use compressed air. What would have been the tank is just a big ceramic capacitor that just unloads all this electricity. All at once to the final drive, and it just goes for 50 yards, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like it. I think we'll keep it. We'll we'll integrate it with, with my idea, which is uh hearkening back to the early, early days of uh of motorcycles and motorcycle racing. Okay. Uh, of just uh, throw all technological advances out the window, and uh, and so let's take a classic British um, brand like um, like mm, BSA, where we're okay. up in racing way back when. Yeah. Um. So BSA. So BSA decides to, or I guess India. Uh. What, what's the um. Um, now Royal Enfield's in India. BSA just straight up doesn't exist. Yeah, but it's owned by. It was bought at the same. It, this was like earlier this year. It was bought at the same time as. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what's the, mo- the same people that bought Norton? I think. Yeah, it starts with an M. Mon- I can't remember, but yeah. So Mahindra, Indian, Mahindra yeah. So Mahindra, oh, Mahindra now bought BSA. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they also bought Jawa. Um, so they own all those now. All those brands. Uh. And this is just a reproduction of those very early, like 1920s bikes and racing bikes, but no modern, like they've just taken the last century of motorcycle development and just tossed it out the window. They're literally just remaking this thing that was originally created in 1920. So they're thinking, we only have to get power for about three seconds, then we're coasting after that. And so, then we're good. Okay. Who needs rear shocks? Just rigid frame. Yeah. Just rigid. go for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're just weighting down the front wheel because it just it just puts yeah. ridiculous power to the back wheel. And because they're going by old technology, they can't put any anti-wheelie or anything. It's like, no, we're just going to weigh down the front wheel and just stomp power to yeah. the back. <laughs> yeah, suicide brakes. <laughs> And all, yeah, because all the uh, all the tech is going into this amazing capacitor. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we did it. The leatherhead or okay. leather face, leather. It's the leatherhead. Leatherhead. Okay. All right. So another Spanish word that Americans know. All right, this one's really out there. Well, I guess it's not out there, but this is a Spanish word that every American knows. <laughs> this is a little offensive. We're going with the punta. Jeez. <laughs> I think we should just wrap this episode. <laughs> I told you I wasn't sure about going another <laughs> round. <laughs> I have an idea if you're really stuck. Wait, hang on. Let me just give me a moment. Do, do not Google this. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jonathan, stop. It's okay. Uh, oh, it's squeaky. Okay, so this. Oh, okay. Well, obviously, this is going to be the nickname for the, the the public will give this bike. Okay, and this is going to be. This is going to be like a. Um, this is going to be a Chinese motorcycle. All right. <clears throat> and we're going to get to the point where, due to reasons of economy and cost, it's going to start becoming popular in Mexico, Argentina, Chile. And it's going to be especially, essentially the Chinese, like, Hyo, no, well, Hyosung's Korean. Yeah. But, like, um, oh, what's the what's the other one? What's the one from China? The Shenzhen. Yeah, Shenzhen. People will know what we're talking about. Yeah, there's another big one that we just can't think of that's super huge. Same as the company that's making the Cyclone. Yeah, they're gonna start trying to get in on India's game of making classic British motorcycles. Okay, but they're gonna go for. They're gonna go for a. they're gonna start. They're gonna start getting popular and making kind of these classically styled bikes that are gonna. They're gonna be kind of popular in South America, but they're gonna try and punch a bit above their weight. Above their weight, and similar to how um, Royal Enfield has made the 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 Continental GT, mm-hmm. which is you know basically a bullet five hundred with one more horsepower and yeah. ten less pounds of weight and a flat seat. They're gonna make a like a classic bsa but they're gonna put a full um fully enclosed front wheel fairing on it okay but it's only gonna be like 125 cc's and it's gonna be to the point where technically when you get up to speed it's kind of fast and cool for for the weight for for the engine size but it's so impractical and it missed the mark so badly they're going to call it the Punta. You you saved it. <laughs> I, I had an idea for it that was pretty good, and I think you got it a little yeah. bit better. 
<laughs> Jonathan dragged that idea up out of the dirt and, and turned it into something. And you're probably right because um, um, the the Chinese engines probably are starting to get all over um, Mexico and Central America probably by now. There are uh, a few South American bike models and they tend to go yeah, 125s mm. to 250s. Although Honda does make a 250cc bike in Brazil that's flex fuel, believe it or not. Mm. But beyond that, it does tend to be startup companies in South America that borrow heavily from China and Chinese designs and make 125s to 250s. Zongshan. That's, Zongshan. Zongshan. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. It does tend to be those companies that – and there's quite a lot of them – and they make a variation of something in between scooters and motorcycles and mopeds and all this sort of stuff. And some of them are pretty cool, and some of them aren't very cool. And they do try weird shit like this. This is actually kind of a really... This is one of the more believable ones that we've ever done, actually, sweetie. <laughs> okay. So do you want to give us one last one to okay. go out on? Mike? Yeah. <laughs> like I said, we should have stopped at the last round. Right. But, <laughs> um, all right. So... Okay. So geography, my last one will be... Did I did I do Namibia last time? Do you remember? I don't. All right. So my know. my last one will be Namibia. Namibia. Okay. Are there any resources that that Namibia Di- is known for? Diamonds. Okay. So Namibia is the driest country in Africa. No, you get. You, I've already got. Sand dunes. <coughs> I've already blood got, diamonds. I've already got everything that I need. The skeleton <coughs> coast. So, the Namibia is simply a special edition of the Meduel. That instead <laughs> of a hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars, costs six hundred and forty thousand dollars because. Every little piece of the gauges is diamond impressed. Yes, it is diamond precision mechanics for no other reason than more money, more access. (laughs) Okay. It would be even better if the engine was uh, if the up the compression ratio and the revs. And just like the cost of reliability, because Namibia also is famous for its cheetah population. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it is. you you shrink down the the size of the bike, you cut it to like a one gallon fuel tank, and oh. like up the remove the the rev limiter and move it way up. So this bike will do. Like 180 miles an hour for about 10 miles. Yeah. Take that, Cheetah. Yeah. What? No, I actually like that. Sand tires. I like that better. This is, this is kind of like the Leatherhead, but it's a 10 mile bike. So this is, I'm trying to think of a kind of racing that this would be good for. This is, this is, Okay, all right. This is like a trials bike, but 
really ridiculously overpowered. It's not meant for jumping over rocks or anything like that or doing all that crazy against the wall stuff and stuff that people do with trials bikes and wheelies. It's meant for really fast, rough terrain flat tracking because flat tracking is coming back really big, right? It's called the Namibia Namibia for the the cheetah aspect. This is essentially a trials bike, but as trials, not sorry, this is a flat track bike. And as flat track racing is coming back, they're having a problem with getting good flat track tracks made. And it might have to start moving to a point where they go back to full on dirt because they're trying to do this flat tracking inside of arenas and they're using like, you know, like Dr. Pepper syrup for floors and Mm. stuff to give it some grip, but some slide as well and everything. And it's really hard to make a good, consistent flat track track. And when they finally go back to full on dirt flat tracking well this is the cheetah because the flat track race is like 10 miles so this is a ridiculously sleek again like the meduel an inline or flat inline twin with super high compression pushed beyond the limits of reliability because it only has to go 30 miles less than even a gp race or a super bike race on one engine. So it's something fucking ridiculous, like 18 to one compression. It's just <laughs> this motor at like 11 miles is ready to explode into a million pieces. It's a super lean bike that almost looks like a regular trials bike with it, you know, cause there's nothing to the tank. It holds one gallon of fuel or less. Mm. It needs an extremely long rake. Um, perhaps, yeah, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna do with a better, with more of a rake than you would expect a sport bike to do for that flat tracking sort of ability. So yeah, the rake's gonna be out there. It's gonna have chunky tires, like cheetahs have big paws. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right? And it's good. And let's for make aerodynamics, it's gonna be elongated. Mm-hmm. So you got that cheetah tail. Oh, oh no, this is even better. So to deal with the, you know, because you know, flat trackers have to really get over, right? <sighs> it the back of the tail is gonna have this section ballast. on a swivel that counteracts oh, the yeah. weight to help you. Yes. That's mad genius that, level thinking. That is the Namibia. Okay, we have to end there. Okay, all right. We're not going to do anything good after. Okay, and sand tires because we're riding on Dr. Pepper poured over sand. Well, no, I'm I'm thinking this is when it all goes back to just straight up dirt, but it could still be the Dr. Pepper, yeah. But okay, but because cheetahs don't have uh, retractable claws, their claws are always out. It has to be like something like sand tires. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. No, I'm with you. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. So yeah, knobby tires. Yeah, gotcha. It's All a right. it's a little too much of a step out there, but this game should have stopped one round ago. So. It, okay, it, I I still think we're fine. <laughs> yeah, another round is too much, so we'll we'll end here. So, with that, now we're about to end this episode, and me and Swiggy are about to go get in the car and drive straight to Las Vegas and check into our hotel room for the Aim Expo. 
Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So by the time you're hearing this, we've already been at the AIM Expo. We're interviewing all kinds of crazy people. We're meeting up with all kinds of crazy podcasts. It's going to be awesome. Hopefully we get some sort of crossover roundtable podcast going, but who knows what's going to happen. We may just be too busy just talking to everyone to get to that. I have no idea what's going to happen. This is going to be absolutely insane. But know that we're going to cover this event and just find the most weirdo interesting things from the aim expo we can i you know i i've heard that kawasaki is going to re, uh bring out something big for this show i can't promise you that we're going to cover that because we are looking for the weirdness out of this out of this convention so having said all that you know look forward to what we've got coming out for coverage from that event Send us an email at nokamotopodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we're going to remind you to stay safe and stay tuned. And let's run the and, outro. And it's 11.49 p.m. Yeah. And you're going to drive to Las Vegas. Well, we were hoping just to leave by midnight, so we're on time. Yeah, right. Here we go. <laughs> and I don't want to die. Just, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm, cold. 